Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federal Society virtual event. My name is Jack Dorodin. I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host the Courthouse Steps discussion on today's oral arguments in Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual, Visual Arts, Inc. v. Goldsmiths, featuring Professors V. Rosen. V. is an Assistant Professor of Law at the Southern Illinois University School of Law. Previously, he served as a Visiting Assistant Professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University and as a Visiting Scholar and Professorial Lecturer in Law at George Washington University School of Law. He's also spent time at the United States Copyright Office and in private practice, and he's written extensively on the development of modern copyrighted trademark law. You can view his full bio at fedsoc.org. After Zvi's remarks, we'll go to audience Q&A, so please enter any questions for him into the Q&A function at the bottom right of your Zoom window. Finally, I'll note that as always, all expressions of opinion on today's program are those of our guest speaker. With that, Zvi, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jack. So, um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, on the afternoon after the argument, it's probably the most consequential fair use case of at least the past 30 or so years, 29 years, for those who are counting. I will note at the outset, it was an interesting argument, and as you're seeing the future of the Supreme Court argument process, perhaps, where the argument was almost two hours, even though it was only allotted for 70 minutes, um, with the justices being called on sequentially. Also, um, the court only let 19 people in from a lawyer online, generally seems to be limiting much more attendance in person, which I thought was interesting. I'll tell you a little bit about that Baptist case. Warhol's first being the Andy Warhol Foundation for Visual Arts versus Lynn Goldsmith and her licensing agency, which licenses photographs. So, first let's talk a little bit about the photo. In 1981, Lynn Goldsmith got the assignment for, um, to take a picture of the artist Prince, then still fairly early in his career. Um, and she wanted to capture what it was, she thought his, his vulnerability and shyness. She took this picture in 1981. She only took a few shots of him before he left early. All that was fine and well. Lynn Goldsmith is an accomplished photographer, especially with a lot of rock and roll, among other work, and has an extensive licensing business. So this entered a stable of her copyrights. All fine and well. A couple of years later, 1984, um, Princess Star had really risen, and Vanity Fair wanted to do an article about how he had become a major celebrity, and also some of the unease associated with that. So we had an article called, and so they said, we need an illustration of this. They bought a license from Goldsmith for to use this photograph as an artist's reference. Unbeknownst to Goldsmith, but within the terms of a license, they then hired Andy Warhol to do a Warhol version of this, which he did. It was published in 1984 with an article called Purple Fame, around the time of the movie Purple Rain, of course. This was near the end of Warhol's life. He died in 1986. But unbeknownst to certainly Goldsmith, Warhol created 15 other similar drawings of Prince, in a so-called Prince collection, or Prince series, rather. And these were within Warhol's um, property. Warhol died in 86. These were all subsequently sold off to private collectors for large amounts of money. Even that didn't bring the lawsuit. Goldsmith was apparently unaware of these uses of Prince's, um, of her photo to create the Prince series. 
That all changed in 2016 when Prince died. Condé Nast wanted to run a special commemorative issue, and they requested permission to have the purple Warhol that was, that was used in 84. Now, I will note, of course, I believe Vanity Fair is a Condé Nast publication, but nonetheless, they realized they needed a license to print it. The Andy Warhol Foundation said, just so you know, we have 15 others in our collection of copyrights. Would you like to use a different one? And they instead used the purple, the orange prints, rather, this one, which used to print. Warhol found out about this use and that began this lawsuit. Now, everyone agrees. So the Warhol Foundation was paid $10,000 in 2016. For this, Goldbiss was paid nothing. Everyone agrees that this is fundamentally a copy, not just obviously based on, but literally you can see Warhol used the photograph as part of the silkscreen process to create the whole print series. It's not simply inspired by, it's literally copied from the photograph. Question then becomes, is this a fair use? And so there was, the lineage of fair use goes back to really the 1830s. I should say I wrote an amicus brief in this case that focused on some of the early history of fair use and also the derivative work right, which we talked about in a little bit. Section 107 of the copyright law says that use of a copyrighted work for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, however, those are only exemplary, only exemplary. you see for such as is a key word there as well, is not an infringement of copyright. And then the statute sets forth these four factors. These are not exclusive factors. Those factors shall include the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole, and the effective of, uh, effectively use of potential market for copyrighted work. And you have a few cases that start interpreting this, but the key one really is Campbell versus Dickhoff Rose Music. In 19 the case happened in 93, where um, you have the use of Roy Orbison's song, Pretty Woman, and then the rap group Two Live Crew created effectively a vulgarized version of that for their album as clean as they want to be. Ironically, created mainly because Walmart would not run their, real, their main album as dirty as they want to be. The um, um, Acuff Rose Music, which I believe was Orbison's publisher, sued Campbell and all, saying it was vague and copyright infringement. The U.S. Supreme Court held that the use by Campbell was, a, was fair use because it was parodic. In particular, they said the key thing about a parody is that it has to use the entire work in order for its essential message of parody to be understood, and that the court would look at whether there is a transformative meaning or message to the use. So as happens perhaps all, all too often with um, Supreme Court opinions, Courts saw this language and may have over-applied it. That's certainly what Goldsmith is saying. But parody is one thing, but regular uses are another. And there are a series of cases in the Second Circuit, notably uh, Carrie versus Prince, different, a different Prince, um, which stretched the meaning of transformative use and the meaning or message test. The district court thus applied the Carrie case and held that because the use by Warhol conveyed a different meaning or message than the Goldsmith photograph, it was a fair use. The Second Circuit disagreed. The Second Circuit said Carrie had been what they called the high watermark 
of the extension of fair use, and they argued, and they said, no, it doesn't go quite that far. Transformative transformation is an important consideration as part of a purpose and character of the use, but it can't be the alpha and omega of a copyright inquiry. And so as a result, the court found for Warhol. Now I will say, after the Second Circuit held not for, not for Warhol, the Second Circuit, Second Circuit held for Goldsmiths, the district court held for Warhol. After a Second Circuit opinion, the Supreme Court held the Google versus Oracle case, holding Google's use of uh, Java, the Java programming language, was a transformative use. Uh, Warhol went back to the Second Circuit and asked that they, they reconsider their judgment in light of new precedent. But the court stayed where it was. They added a new section to the opinion saying that the Google case is really about software, not about IP, not about transformative use generally. And interestingly, I didn't see a lot of mentions of, of Google versus Article at the Supreme Court, which I found rather interesting. It was only last term and found the work to be transformative, but it's a very different sort of usage. So never, never before the Supreme Court, the question presented is whether the Supreme Court was right to use an objective test, as they, as the, they put it, as opposed to a mean or message test. The real question before the Supreme Court is what weight to give transformation and the main, whether the work communicates a new meaning or message. I do think there's a general sense that some of the cases that just said is there a new meaning or message, good, fair use, are going to be um, overruled. And we're going to see a new standard, which narrows fair use some, but probably not in a way which is necessarily going to make Goldsmith happy. So I don't necessarily know how it's going to go. I will say also, the actual question presented only looks at the first aspect of a fair use factor, the purpose and character of the use, and whether or not it's transformative. The other factors, which the Second Circuit held, also favored Goldsmith, weren't, may well not be addressed by the Supreme Court. You had a, a long discussion of whether they were even briefed, and counsel for Warhol said they were not. So I'd, I'd be surprised if you have a complete use of fair use, I think you're probably never remand with a new standard for transformation and how to apply it. After which I kind of suspect Ultimate will probably win because the issue won all the other factors, but I'm not sure. So one of the key questions here is what use exactly are we talking about? And part of that is how do we define works and uses? In other words, what exactly, when we talk about a fair use, are we talking about the creation of a new work that's fair use? Or are we talking about each individual use of a work? And there's a gen some people have argued that it looks to whether or not a work is a fair use and it's done. I think that's difficult if you look at factor four, which is really specific on the effect of the use upon a potential market. It's difficult to know necessarily upon the creation of the alleged infringing work. Um, but at the same time, if every time you create a work that's fair use, you have you have to rerun with fair use factors, that's at least people argue that's gonna be a major drag on the creation of creative of creative uses. On the other hand, of course, you can easily imagine that not saying that fair use is reapplied to each use leads to absurd results. And for instance, going back to Pretty Woman. Let's say you just wanted to be opening guitar rest, which I believe is the same in Campbell's use. If you, pretty obviously, you can't sample 
the Campbell phone to get a recording of the opening guitar riff from Pretty Woman, even though it's the same thing. Pretty clearly, you'd have to go back to the original because you aren't using the transformative word for a transformative purpose. But how exactly that means is going to vary, and the court is going to have to look at that. Another interesting question is how exactly is a meaning or message test for transformation related to derivative works? And this is where we get into an interesting question of what exactly a derivative work is. Generally speaking, the copyright law gives a series of exclusive rights. It's a right to make reproductions, make um, distributions, performances, and to create derivative works. Derivative works, for instance, are a dramatization, a sequel, a translation, a supplementary work, etc. And in terms of how a meaning or message, there's a lot of concern if a meaning or message test really eviscerates the exclusive right to create derivative works. In particular, if you look at 17 USC 101, the definition of derivative work is a work which alters, recasts, or transforms the original work. And so if your test for fair use is whether or not it transforms, but you have, a, and I will say transform does not appear in the statute. But whereas you, you do have a statutorily defined right to create derivative works, where the word transformed is used, you think for, that there would be a preference to follow the statute and to say that transform, transformative works are works which one cannot create unless they are otherwise in fair use. And it's frankly going to be a real tightrope. It doesn't help, by the way. But we still, even though we have this definition of, you know, works that, you know, adapts, transform, or, transform or recast the original work, we don't really have great definitions of what derivative works are. Not a lot of cases that explain how something called substantial similarity, aka non-literal copying, is different from the right of fair use. And even legislative history is not that helpful. Um, there are some cases that try to define it, but the definitions are generally insufficient. In the case they tried to say, well, with a new medium, it's a derivative work, but they're derivative works like sequels, which are in the same medium. So it doesn't seem to fly. Um, it's some really interesting questions from the court about whether purpose and character of the use are the same thing. See that in factor one, the purpose and character of the use. And sure, copyright lawyers have generally read these terms as being almost sort of a magic phrase um, and not read them separately. But the Supreme Court was saying, well, maybe we should look at them separately. And clearly speaking, the purpose was not transformative, but was a character transformative. And splitting those words to look at two different things, which would in turn put transformative use more in the character of the use rather than the purpose of the use. Um, that, like I said, that, as far as I know, has not really been discussed among copyright lawyers. We interested to see if that gains traction. Um, another practical question the court was really looking at is what sort of evidence is there for meaning or message, and how would you figure it out? I mean, this really gets to the concern of making judges into art critics. It's been a concern for a very long time. We famously have a Blessing versus Donson lithographic case in 1903, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. made very clear that a judge in copyrighted work should not assign themselves a judge of quality of the work, only whether or not it's being copied. And that was very much repeated in Campbell versus A. Cuff Rose. 
So, but you're de facto going to be asking the question of, as Campbell said, you have to know if it's a parody or not. The judge, judge has to make a determination. For, but there's a real concern that by making judges the determinants of mean more message, we're making the judicial role too large and adding too much uncertainty to the case. Um, you had an interesting mention, of course, going back to Warhol, of whether Warhol's use of Campbell soup cans is a fair use or not. And the question, what it, well, he could have made Cheerios boxes, for instance, would that have conveyed the same meaning? And I think the, as, a court, as many people noted, the soup cans are an easier case for fair use because he was using them in a profoundly different sort of way than was being used in, you know, by Campbell. Campbell wants, wants to sell you soup. It's a sort of trademark-like use, although they are copyrightable. Warhol had no interest in that. He was specifically commenting on commercialism in the era. Um, and so, but you do see this sort of desire to have a standard for the use of the original because you have a slime criticism or comment. And the lawyers for Warhol tried to argue there's no necessity that you comment on the original. It's an interesting art. It's been argued before, but you know, it goes to a sort of parody satire distinction that comes out of Campbell to a degree, although courts have sort of blown past it. To find that a parody is a fair use because it necessarily uses the original that comments on it. A satire which merely appropriates the original but does not comment on it is not a fair use. It's not necessary to take the, the original a little whole. Many courts have gone beyond that to say that more general satire is also a fair use. Um, Warhol's counsel argued that. Uh, Goldsmith's counsel obviously did not. And you did have the government, which um, argued uh, for itself, and which fell down its brief and argued as well as the parties, did suggest a standard if the use of the original was necessary or either useful or highly useful. I saw some death during that word highly. But generally speaking, that there is some real utility to the use of the original, um, which made it important to use the original and not merely a choice. It meant the classic example of just, you know, if you look at something like Weird Al songs, some of them comment on the original song, some just appropriate the song to make some sort of left hand joke. So, if there was some concern, American Society Media Photographers filed a brief that said, if you go with Warhol's interpretation, it's going to be essentially impossible for commercial photographers to make a living, and a lot, and a lot of concern about that. But there are some broader questions here. In the Supreme Court in 1883, how the photographs are copyrightable, but not everyone has fully made for peace with that. And you did see some people trying to argue about, about photos. I don't think the Supreme Court will touch that. but um, I got a question, you know, questions about whether photos are in any way different because they attempt to to depict reality. Um, they depict reality in a more sort of concrete way or not. I don't know if that will play into it or not. Also, have had a fascinating co conversation. Um, as I mentioned, the argument went nearly two hours, and Chief Justice Roberts was actually calling on the justices. So Justice Thomas, um, as is usually not his wont, uh, spoke. He mentioned he was a fan of Prince in the 80s, leaving Justice Kagan to note and not anymore, um, which got some laughs from the audience. And he had this example, what if you um, 
took the goldsmiths, took the war, took the um, gold, the uh, Warhol rather, and you painted it the purple Warhol and painted it orange, and set it up at a Syracuse game. You know, Syracuse Argument, of course, and whether or not that would be a fair use. And truth be told, this is really anyone's guess what's going to happen, but it's going to be enormously consequential. Fair use is the main and increasingly. And really, by far the most important exception to copyright law. And it's all over the internet, people saying they're, they're fair users or not. And I do think you're going, whatever happens is going to be very important. So I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you. Thanks so much, V. So we'll now turn to audience Q&A, as you alluded to, or remind our audience, you can submit questions using the Q&A button at the bottom right of your window. And I guess I'll, I'll kick us off with one of my own here. You mentioned you don't, you're stopping short of a, a firm prediction of how the court might rule, but do you see the court taking this opportunity to make it sort of a, a lasting ruling regarding fair use and maybe waiting a while again for taking a similar case? Or do you think it might be a, a more marginal change here? You know, it sort of depends, I think, just how much the court wants to get into this. Um, I will note, as, as I mentioned, there was a lot of discussion that the other factors were not fully briefed. And so I don't know if that's going to be a factor in whether or not they are going to be issuing a more big decision or a more limited decision. It was a little surprising, frankly, to have two IP decisions, two fair use cases in two years. Google the Oracle was just last year, although it was technically granted the year before. Um, I tend to think, though, that this is going to be the last big decision for a while on fair use, just like the last one was. And I think the court is going to clarify what it meant by transformative use in the 90s. And hopefully, that'll be something courts can use them forward. Once again, our audience, you can submit questions using the Q&A button at the bottom right. And while we wait for questions to come in, I guess I'll use my moderator's prerogative to ask one more. Um, do you see this case breaking along typical ideological lines at all? Or do you think given the sort of more esoteric nuanced nature of the issues, it, it might be a little unpredictable? I think it would be unpredictable. I think that the court just lost its two major combatants in copyright cases. Um, some of you might know that Justice Breyer in 1970 wrote his Harvard tenure piece on, on copyright and um, the uneasy case for copyright. The uneasy case for copy of the uneasy case for um, copyright, I believe. And um, Justice Ginsburg, on the other hand, um, was the most vocal defender of copyright law, and they also found themselves at odds. For instance, Golan Beholder, and um, in other cases, Eldridge versus Ashcroft as well. Uh, those are both about the constitutionality of copyright term extensions and copyright restoration. I don't think that's going to break on ideological grounds. I remember, I remember Golan V. Holder as a little surprised to see the unusual pairing of Justice Breyer and Justice Alito uh, in dissent. Um, but, and I, yeah, I don't necessarily see that changing. It's hard. There's just a lot of open questions, to be honest. I don't, I have no, there were two new justices on, on who I'd never seen live, of course, you know, Justice um, Barrett and Justice Jackson. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, but I'd be very surprised at an ideological bridge. I do think for a vote, there is a 
more, we might call um, flexible, uh, drier type interpretation that looks at, you know, ideas of fair use and having lots of new artwork created in public discourse versus a more textualist view that's going to say, well, it says transformative for derivative works. But I think we'll see what happens. All right, so we have a few questions now. One person is wondering, what about the fair use case from 1968 involving the Subruder film? Oh, man. Um, I'll admit, I haven't read that before. Um, it's actually, I think Brian Fry has written a cool piece about that. Um, that's a really, and okay, so I haven't read that case. Um, I do, it is protected by copyright law. Um, I tend to, I mean, the Preter's film is such a sui generis piece of Americana, right? It's something totally unique in American history. Um, and I tend to think that this, um, I don't think, I think that this is probably not going to seriously disturb that. That also predates the um, enactment of, of the uh, 76 Act or its fair use factors. So I think it's, it's a fascinating case, but I don't think this case doesn't do that much to it, per se. And with a major caveat, it definitely is worth reading again, reading Brian Farn's article about it. All right, we have a question here. Justice Jackson stated the view that the Warhol side was applying the term purpose too broadly. Isn't she right? If judges inquire into artistic purpose, doesn't that invite judges to break Justice Holmes's admonition that judges should not be the arbiter of artistic merit? Yeah, well, so that's absolutely right. I'm, I'm trying to be sort of even-handed here. And that's obviously, you know, if you say that, you're deciding how you're going to rule. But yeah, that's of course, right. And de facto, we've ended up with all of these decisions where, where judges say, oh, this is transformative. Therefore, it's fair use. What does transformative mean? Frankly, you get into a line um, that says, I know it when I see it. Um, you know, that's all it really is. Oh, this comments, well, that, well, this is a new meaning or message. That isn't. How do you know? Well, I just know. And it's absolutely right. You're making the judge essential. You're almost, you don't want to ask judge, do you like this or not? It's completely agree. I think it's a terrible standard. I think the court and Campbell, the court and Campbell was, well, Campbell, I think, had been widely overread. I think Campbell, if you read it, is a, it tries to do a detailed balancing to cover parody, which is not covered by the four factors. But everyone agrees that parody is fair use. And then that, the Campbell decision was then read to just be about meaning or message. But Justice Souter does a much more, much more careful balancing in that case. Um, and I do think we're going to see the end of just meaning or message on its own. We're going to see the Supreme Court saying, no, read the whole. It's sort of like, it's sort of like I, tell, I tell law students. Read the whole opinion, not just not just one line summary. Right, we have a question here about how whatever rule does come out of this case, do you see any issues and how it might be applied to different art forms? Or yeah, do you see any issues with jurists applying across different types of media? That's a really interesting question. I mean, different I mean different rules for, for periodic transformation. Um you know, parody is so tricky because we all agree parody proper is fair use. I don't know everyone does, but it's certainly, if you, if you look at the treatises, and I talk about this in my amicus brief, it's long been discussed that parody is, um, 
you know, fair use. But for why it's always been unclear and how and how we find out what parody is. If you look at what old treatises, it says parody or burlesque. It's so sort of an old-timey usage of burlesque. Um, but different media, I mean, I think for all of them, it's still a note when I see it. And of course, in Campbell, the court says, you know, there's a difference between, you know, we, we don't look at good parody versus bad parody, but we have to evaluate if it's parody or not. And that inevitably involves some sort of um, judgment, which is a little bit, um, you know, uh, you know, a judge making decision that's um, not really based on necessarily all that much. Um, and I do think judges sometimes struggle with see parody. And on the flip side, you'll see people argue everything is pet. In every fair use case ever, they've been argued, they've argued, criticized their comments somehow. I guess that's so. Short answer is I don't think the court has set any standards for that in this case. I'd be shocked if they did. Um, like, I, you know, in terms of, um, I do think judges almost certainly have a hard time seeing parody in art versus parody in music, and parody music is much easier to see. But I don't think the court's going to get going to get too deep into that. One more question here. What impact could this ruling have on derivative works that are owned or displayed in museums? Yeah, so that's a question that has really been important. And I will say Goldsmiths in particular has been very careful to say we aren't talking about that. And Warhol has been saying, oh, yes, you are. Look at your complaint. And whether or not, you know, I don't want to say who's right or wrong there, but you have a specific concurrence of a second circuit from, I believe, Judge, Judge Jacobs saying, just so you know, we're just talking about the license to Condé Nast. We are not talking about use of museums. The government also weighed in with their brief to say, we believe that the use by Condé Nast is not a fair use, but we are not going, but we, but we think that the use by museums and creation of a print series generally may well be different. Um, now, if a if a derivative work is lawfully made under under copyright law, it may be publicly distributed under Section 109 of the copyright law. And so if assuming creation of a print series was a fair use, and frankly, assuming the court, and I think it probably will, works a standard that differentiates between the licensing and the creation of a physical artworks, it's not going to be that great. If a court gives a, gives a mishmash or a very broad opinion, they absolutely can be substantial. Because if these works are not lawfully made under copyright law, you are um, violating the exclusive right of public display by displaying them. So yes, I do think the court is going to try to clarify that. All right, we have one more question in the queue for now. I'll note one more time for our audience. You can submit using the Q&A button at the bottom right. So this last question is, any thoughts on why the court rejected the Onion brief? I don't think that was in this case. Um, and I actually hadn't heard they rejected it. I know, I mean, so I read that brief. It's hilarious. Um, really, you know, fun. But they, they did something like in their, um, I think it was the amicus brief, right? And they stated interest of the parties. And their statements and interests of parties were, were parody. Like in, the Onion is the world's leading news publication with 4.3 billion subscribers. If the court bounced it, it probably bounced it because even though it was, it was obviously a parody, I doubt it was sanctioned them. I guess the court decided that, you know, you know, 
sa- um, save your fun for um, Vunion.com and don't put it in your briefs. That's my guess. It's a shame, honestly. Oh, is the Oracle case rightly decided? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jack. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. If you um, like address it. No. But it does some interesting things. It, it, just my opinion. Um, I think it's really helpful to, I mean, Thomas, I think, really gets it in his dissent. Um, and you see it. So, well, okay, here's the thing. He says, I actually just taught this case a few days ago, so I had a chance to read it again. Uh, Oracle does a couple of interesting things. They say nature, and they, and they establish this new principle that for works that are on the periphery of copyright protection, like highly functional software, which might have only thin protection, if you will, that is going to work, going to, going to go against a finding of fair use. So highly functional software is less likely to be a fair use. I think that's probably the best part of the opinion. I think, you know, it's arguable. It's certainly arguable. But as Venvis, you know, you have the purpose and character of the use. And, you know, Justice Breyer tries to argue it's transformative because it empowers the creation of creative works. But that's not really what, what Section 1 says, is it? Part 1 says the purpose and character of the use, not of the subsequent use, but of the actual use. And... But either way, he invents this new version of transformative that it empowers future transformations. All right, whatever. Um, it was in the market effect. It was in a market effects test of Google versus Oracle. But I think even Justice Breyer knew he was reaching, and he just throwing this stuff right and left. And Justice Thomas just nails him to the wall on market effects test. I think. Um, so I think Justice Thomas had it obviously right on that. I think. You can argue nature, but I think all the rest was, you know, went against the finding of fair use. Um, of course, the backstory of that, as I understand it, I mean, part of why it was subjudicated for so long is that Justice Breyer wanted to write a copyrightability opinion about software, but didn't have the votes. So he sort of turned to fair use analysis that has parts of his, and by the way, I don't know if this is even copyrightable, but doesn't roll on those grounds because like I said, I don't think he had the votes. So no, I don't think it was rightly decided. I think the real question for Google versus Oracle going forward, though, is not whether it was rightly decided, because much as I would like to have the power to change things, I can't. What we can say, though, is that I saw almost no discussion before the Supreme Court, and I think it's becoming a software case as opposed to a general fair use case. All right. Well, to close this out, uh, I'm curious. I assume this was your first chance to to catch an argument in person since the courts has been back open. What was that experience like, and how what's the new format like in person? Uh, I hate to disappoint. I actually I showed up at the court, and I was and they only let 19 people in from the lawyer line. And I was later told because I felt an advocate, I should have requested a seat. But I will tell you, it seemed very even though it was in person. If I did it. As far as I could tell, like the like the Zoom arguments, like COVID arguments, where they went, everyone went way over their time. The Chief Justice was calling on everyone. This was supposed to, this was allotted on motion an additional ten minutes for seventy minutes. It went almost two hours, and it went two hours because Chief Justice Roberts kept calling on justices to, to ask more questions after time had expired, which I think unnerved counsel a little bit too. I saw. You heard counsel say, um, that concludes my time. And then Justice Roberts called, Chief Justice Roberts called on another justice to talk, which I think 
It's certainly strange to me, but I guess this is the future. Maybe. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the arguments play out over the rest of the term. And thanks again, Zvi. This has been fantastic. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to today's event. You can check out our, our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on any of the major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date. With that, we are adjourned. Thanks, Zvi. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.